because like Oxford, oh, what is it? Nano. Oh my God, there's a blizzard outside. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to go outside in like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everyone to Not Yet a Doctor, where we're the podcast where we never save anything for the swim back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Om. <laughs> That'll make sense later. Uh, I'm Om. Just finished my PhD in biochemistry at McGill University. I'm Sienna. I'm doing my PhD in neuroscience at McGill University. And I'm Alistair, and I have my PhD in analytical chemistry from Queen's University. And we are your doctor slash PhDs working on it. <laughs> we're PhD. <laughs> we're all PhDs in some format or another. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I'm really excited for this episode, uh, trying a different format, trying something new. And I really want to talk about a movie. And at the heart of this movie is a lot of problematic <laughs> conversations, a lot of social mm-hmm. commentary, but a lot of interesting mm-hmm. science. And I want to mm-hmm. focus on that. Uh, this movie is Gattaca, and it was released in 97. Uh, I'm terrible with like movie producers, directors, so don't worry about it. But some great actors are in it. You know, we got Jude Law. We have, uh, yes. uh, what's his name? Ed. What's his name? Why am I forgetting his name right now? Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. Everyone forgets Ethan, Ethan Hawke's Hawk. name. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We have Uma Thurman. We have like so many great uh, A-list actors, I would say, who are like mm-hmm. nowadays. And so, yeah, this movie is Gattaca. And it's a really interesting movie. I mean, let's get into it. Does anyone want to do like a quick plot overview? I would love to do a quick yes. plot recap. Okay. So the movie sort of starts out with the narrative of this man who works at this space flight institute and he's talking about the system of society that they live in and you kind of find out that there's this method to select for babies that don't have a huge predisposition to disease so he kind of explains that and how that growing up though he was a natural birth. I can't remember what exactly they call it. A faith, faith birth. birth. A faith maybe. birth or like a godchild. So he was just conceived as per usual without any uh, genetic screening. And he ended up having a lot of genetic predispositions based on this genome sequencing test that they do for heart condition, for neurological disease. And then uh, the overall plot, sort of, he he can't find a job because of genome discrimination genoism they call it genoism. and <laughs> that uh, oh and they, another point they call them degenerates uh <laughs> the people who have mm. bad genomes or invalids so he works as a janitor but he really wants to work in the space industry that's his dream works as a janitor for quite a while and then eventually gets in touch with this sort of underground um black market black yeah. market for other people's identities who have a high quality genome and he meets this man played by Jude Law. I don't. Uh, Jerome. His name is uh, Jerome should, Eugene. Jerome. Yeah. His yeah. name is Jerome Eugene, and Jerome Eugene used to be a swimmer, but then he breaks his legs, so he's in a wheelchair, and he pretty much can't do anything with his life. But he has a, a according to this movie, I, I <laughs> for, according to this movie, if you break your legs, that's it for you. So, or I guess he broke his back, not his legs. Anyways, he's paralyzed and in a wheelchair. And so he sells his identity to our main character, Vincent, and Vincent assumes the role of Jerome 
and is able to undergo all of these body modifications to get taller, to have blue eyes, <laughs> to um, have better vision. He wears contacts um, so that he can then get a job at the Gattaca company that is the spaceflight company. And then one of the people, he's supposed to go on a space flight in two weeks, which is his ultimate dream. But one of the directors at the company is murdered. And this starts an investigation into who murdered it. And Jerome is always Jerome Vincent. Vincent Jerome, our main character, who stole Jerome's identity slash purchased it, uh, is always very careful to use like a little vacuum to suck up all his skin cells and everything so that he doesn't leave a trace of his actual genome at his site of work. However, there is an eyelash that he has left behind in one case. And this gets found by these people who are doing this massive sweep to try and find the murderer of the director. This puts law enforcement sort of onto his scent. And so the rest of this movie is him trying to sort of just get through the last week so that he can go on his space flight. This involves a romance with another employee at the company played by Uma Thurman. Irene, yeah. Irene, exactly. Her name is Irene, played by Uma Thurman. And this involves sort of also delving into his backstory with his family, because brother was genetically selected for excellence, whereas he wasn't meeting his brother again, and ultimately just barely getting away with it to go on his space flight. And yeah. Yeah. Any <laughs> questions? It was a great summary. <laughs> it was a great summary. And like a lot of just like happenstance things happen where he kind of gets mm-hmm. away with... Uh, a lot of nonsense. I think that was a great summary, Sienna, um, and it didn't really have any spoilers in it, but we should say to our listeners, if you are wanting to watch this spoiler-free, yeah. um, we're going to be spoiling it, so pause now, watch the movie, yeah. and then come back and listen. But yeah. also, you've had the last 20-odd years to watch this movie, so... <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, This is on you. Uh, and I want to add that, like, for me, personally, I... I really thought of this movie because growing up in you know elementary school and in high, particularly high school, anytime we had a bio class that was you know we had a supply teacher or whatever, this was the movie <laughs> they played. So I ha- I've seen this movie a little bit too much, <laughs> I would say. Um, and so I also want to add a couple of things like Gattaca in this scenario is the space company like Sienna said, mm-hmm. and it's kind of taking the place of NASA like in our yeah. world, right? And in this future society as well, they only select for people with really great genomes so that's an important uh, mm-hmm. component here and like Sienna said that's genoism you're not supposed to do it the government says don't but lo and behold company does it. yeah corporate will says we want the best because it's normalized in this society so mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I think that's kind of it there's a lot of funny things about this movie uh, for me personally and I think the main thing is how they test and screen for people mm. um, the main way that they do this is basically drawing blood or your urine and that's it mm-hmm. and except for like the cases where the police come in or the detectives come in and they start using hair or skin follicles which for some reason is the only scenario where they're willing to use other <laughs> other mm-hmm. um, sampling methods uh, exactly sampling methods and so the way i kind of saw this was like this is the future that elizabeth holmes like dreamt up <laughs> yeah. with her that's probably true <laughs> this is probably the inspiration for her blood Ex- test company yeah exactly like this outcome of like authoritarian corporate Mm -hmm. classism right where you having the least predisposition for any issues makes you super great and another funny thing about this movie i felt at least was 
in this future society where you can find out people's predispositions for disease, we've done mm. nothing to try and actually help them. Yeah. But in fact, yeah. instead invested all of our efforts to screen for them and eliminate yeah. <laughs> eliminate them as well. Yeah, I guess um, major content warning for this movie is eugenics. Like the whole yeah. movie is based on the theme of eugenics. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much all like pre-birth eugenics, essentially, like you just, but that can be like, probably triggering to some and it's also just like it's fucked up yeah it's a fucked up system that they've implemented in this movie but that's that's the theme yeah exactly Um, i don't love it. i will say that is an interesting point that they do nothing to alleviate these conditions that they've found before birth although we Mm -hmm. do see irene taking some undisclosed pills for her heart Mm -hmm. condition so there is some indication that maybe some people are receiving treatments for some things but yeah it but the yeah, entire society the is built is... around just screening them out, which is exactly dumb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like Sienna said, this idea of like you know eugenics, without getting too into it, is like deeply tied with racism, right? And I found it mm-hmm. interesting <laughs> as a black man watching this movie <laughs> that the main character's name is Vincent Freeman and Anton Freeman, mm-hmm. which is often like you know names associated with slaves that were freed and so in this scenario they're almost analogizing these people Mm. not ideal but let's get back into the science very very interesting another thing that was funny to me was you know how insurance like you know medical insurance worked in this world where Mm -hmm. vincent our young protagonist has a lot of predispositions he has myopia terrible i have myopia i guess i should just leave (laughs) (laughs) he has like a 99 percent chance of like a heart issue or heart disease Mm -hmm. and because of that insurance companies since they know that information are like we're not covering him Mm -hmm. we're not going to let help him uh advance his society so really and he says it really well in the movie that your cv or everything about you is dictated just based on your blood Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we move we move a little bit further into the movie and like Sienna said, he's gotten his job as a janitor <laughs> at Gattaca uh, because he's an invalid or a degenerate. Um, his genes don't measure up. And slowly he learns about the systems involved. So like I said, they sample mm-hmm. blood from your finger upon entry. So instead of an ID card that you would see, right, now we're talking about blood. And anytime there's a test, like a screening, they just measure your pee. Plain mm-hmm. and simple. And so he learns and develops these kind of techniques to try and bypass these these things when he gets his borrowed ladder which is our mm-hmm. perfect superior genetic specimen um Jude known Ma. as jerome <laughs> and Jude Law, which i you know hard to disagree with that one <laughs> we love Jude Law. Yeah. so i want to ask the question like is there dna in our blood could you measure it yeah absolutely because it's in your blood cells your white blood yeah. cells your white blood cells and that's i just wanted to talk about that because that was a funny uh just cool technicality like your red blood cells don't actually have dna mm. right mm-hmm. they have the rna so you could sequence it on rna you could but it would be difficult why not just go straight for the white blood cells and all your other lymphocytes leukocytes and just check mm. from there mm-hmm. uh, so you can do that the other fun the funny thing was i also watched this with my girlfriend who is a medical uh technologist and so mm-hmm. she does a lot of these analysis where she looks like predisposition for certain issues or she like will look at uh try and find cells in different uh i'll call it human fluids right mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the topic of pee obviously came up right and so mm-hmm. i asked you guys this question could you measure dna in your pee i don't think so i go yes well why why not um because pee has a lot of water in it 
So That's first true. of all, you'd need a huge volume of urine to get anything else that isn't water. And then the other large component is urea, which I would think would be kind of toxic or harmful to any sort of living material that's in there. Absolutely. And it's a waste product. And like, I don't think your body really wants to be expelling DNA with its waste. <laughs> right. Those are my answers. I think you've nailed kind of uh, an important uh, stopgate towards being able to analyze DNA uh, in the urine. But I will say this, modern day techniques, this was, this, it was definitely an issue in the past, but now yeah. modern day, we can do sequencing on like even four to five different cells if you can get them. Yeah. Urine is very basic, but we can stabilize that by adding acids. And so mm -hmm. it actually can neutralize that and we can actually end up storing the pee for a significant uh, uh, amount of time and thereby mm -hmm. allow for us to, uh, to sequence and look at the cells later, but not for too long. The main issue I had was how they store these fluids, whether that's blood <laughs> or urine, which is just mm -hmm. in a four degree fridge, <laughs> which, which I found kind of funny. Yeah. Like you said, because urine has urea and it's very basic, it'll break down these things very quickly and leaving it over time in the fridge, not ideal. And the same with the blood. The blood is not usually great. It's filled with anticoagulants, but you mm -hmm. can store blood, funny enough, mm -hmm. uh, for those interested. If you add a stabilizer like glycerol, you can then freeze the blood and keep that for a long time. And that's really important for people with like very particular uh, uh, genetic diseases associated with their bloods. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they need to have, for example, a transplant or have that blood, a different transfusion, and they require their own blood because of difficult matches, then you can actually get that blood back. Mm -hmm. You can clear the glycerol and like actually transplant that back in. Cool. Something my mm -hmm. girlfriend also taught me about. Very interesting. <laughs> wow. So, so you can mm -hmm. actually sequence DNA from pee. So that means that there, it, yeah. there are cells that sometimes get into urine. Yeah, yeah. sometimes oh, your kidney is not a perfect system. Yeah, and there's also like. You know, you have a urinary tract mm -hmm. and everything, and there's cells that make that up, and there's going mm -hmm. to be, it's an epithelial lining, so there's going to be cells that die and, like, just slough off into the pee. Very few of them, but um, this is a weird tangent, and I'll just say this, yeah. and then we can move on. Uh, <laughs> when I started my degree, I remember seeing a talk from another student whose goal was to make stem cells from pee, because pee is a super accessible biofluid, yeah. and there are, like, if you just get enough of it, you can get enough cells to revert them back into stem cells and make like induced pluripotent stem cells for culturing from people. So yeah, cool. I don't know how successful his project's been <laughs> since then. But it's a, it's but, a, it's uh, a admirable goal. It's a known. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I'm gonna get into some of these different fluids and things just because I'm gonna get to the point a little bit later because I think at the heart of this movie is ultimately DNA and what, mm -hmm. and how we can analyze it and. The funniest part for me when I saw like how kind of this dystopian future were these kiosks, right? Going to mm -hmm. your friendly neighborhood sequencing facility and giving in a piece of hair, uh, getting saliva. your lips swabbed mm -hmm. from the guy you just kissed. <laughs> yeah, and finding out what their uh, their score is basically, or how valid mm -hmm. can you be? And it was funny because they gave them back a score, like this person's a yeah. nine point three. Which was interesting to me, you know, are there perfect tens? Are there sixes? Yeah. Like, and what's the threshold for value? Um, it's very, uh, very interesting. But I want to ask you guys, do you think nowadays that there are possible kiosks for screening, uh, right, disease, or, you know, sequencing mm. yourself? I Well, 23 and me. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think it, it is possible. I don't think the 
touch like they had these little handheld devices that would take the blood sample or when they're walking into work i don't think that's possible to do the sequencing right then and there in a such a small device but i definitely think there are companies and places like you said sienna 23andme they can do that absolutely yeah and we see that nowadays um just like you said with the ancestry testing but in these scenarios they're not whole genome sequencing that's not what they're doing they're looking for what are called polymorphisms Mm which are like unique changes to the DNA associated with people from different, um, I'll call it ethnicities to keep it simple, mm-hmm. but different backgrounds is another way to put it, uh, or different regions in the in the world, basically. Mm-hmm. The 23andMe also offers genetic testing for diseases. And in those scenarios too, it's also looking for rare variants of SNPs in those ones. Okay. So you can actually test those by looking at polymorphisms associated with disease, but you wouldn't sequence the whole genome to determine, uh, for example, a panel of, for example, every different company has a set panel of different diseases mm-hmm. to look at, so like between 70 to 200 of them. And based on that panel, they'll do either what's called like a chip, or they can do PCR itself to actually mm-hmm. analyze for those specific diseases. And you can see if, for example, someone has mutations in certain proteins, or in, uh, because of changes in their nucleotides, that will make them more predisposed to certain diseases. So what's right. what's the barrier to doing whole genome sequencing for an individual? There's Very nowadays low, honestly. <laughs> nowadays it's slow. No but barrier. in the past, yeah, in the past <laughs> it wasn't. I think the thing is it's like um it's a big investment up front. Mm-hmm. And doing mm-hmm. these like simpler chips is at the end of the day super cheap and much easier. And you can imagine for a company, you know, it's much faster just to get it done that way. So at the end of this movie, we're looking at different samples, different ways to actually interrogate people's genomes and it seems to me at first i was thinking maybe they're tagging people's dna maybe they're finding Mm -hmm. a way to quickly identify people based on some signature or polypeptide that they may have inserted and i think that was my thought as a kid as well i always thought this movie was about kind of modifying the dna so we can know people's scores in a very fast way I think that was my efficient science mind thinking. That's a way better way, honestly. <laughs> it would, would be, be way better. That would be way better. But unfortunately, the characters insisted that this was sequencing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Multiple times they say, we're sequencing, we're sequencing. So I was like, damn, I tried to help the, um, the screenwriters out. I regret that. But this also, that. this came out in 97, right? Yeah. So this is when the first human genome was being sequenced. At that time. I'm, so I'm sure they were saying sequencing because it was also a very exciting word at the mm-hmm. time. Like, exactly. this is a brand new thing that we can do. Yeah. And I don't think they anticipated that project taking as long as it did. Yeah. <laughs> 2003, right? That's when it exactly. finished. Exactly. Yeah. When it finished. So it took a really, really long time. And so, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, this whole movie was really interesting. Um, there's a lot of cool themes with respect to DNA. You see the spiral scare, uh, staircases happening all the time. Yeah. It's all over the place. It's in the main. Um, building of Gattaca you can see the spirals and people walking up them mm-hmm. it's in Vincent and Jerome's apartment mm-hmm. they have the yeah. spiral circles come up and when they finally do the reveal to uh, Irene slash Uma Thurman yeah it's it's exactly that you see him walk up the stairs almost unwinding the DNA and or something yeah. along those lines to reveal that he is in fact a uh, borrowed ladder so he's uh he's he's actually an invalid right yeah yeah and just speaking on, you know, how advanced this future society is as well, Uma Thurman's character is kind of funny because she also has some predisposition, as I also kind of mm-hmm. noted, but she's still considered a valid. So it kind of goes back to that kind of score, like how many predispositions until you're not. Mm-hmm. They don't make that clear <laughs> in the movie uh, in any way. 
But before getting into the, the technical components of things like sequencing, I want to get into that and what this looks like nowadays. Are we measuring up to this movie at all? Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on any themes or any interesting components of movies that really stepped out to you or jumped out to you? I had a really interesting thing that's kind of unrelated to our entire podcast, but I wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. and that's the music of this movie. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had never heard of Michael Nyman, who's the composer, but he did a really great job of putting themes in and music in. And one of the coolest parts of the movie was when they go and see the 12 fingered pianist. And so mm-hmm. the, the scene starts out and you hear um, Schubert's impromptu, which I've it's like a classical piece i've heard it before and it's really nice but it's really hard to play because the right hand is doing a lot of work there's like the melody but then also these like noodly bits in the middle and then as the music's going as the scene plays out there's like higher up like plink plonks put above that aren't actually in the actual piece and i heard this and knowing the impromptu i was like that would be really hard to play because your right hand's doing the melody and these noodly bits but then what's doing the plink plonks? Like, oh, weird, they've, like, accentuated the music in a weird way that you couldn't actually play. Like, that's weird. And then it's revealed that he's a 12-fingered pianist, and I'm like, oh my god. They kind of hinted at that musically mm-hmm. before actually revealing that he was at 12 fingers. Now, I don't think you could actually play what they wrote for that scene with 12 fingers. I think you'd need three hands, but, you know. <laughs> I still think it was a really cool... Just a really long pinky yeah, with a lot of dexterity, yeah. right? Like, a really wide... Anyway, it was it was just... Really long, dexterous extra finger on the <laughs> side of your Exactly, head. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just thought that was a really cool way to, like, highlight or, like, hint at that he was genetically mm-hmm. superior or had extra fingers without saying it. Like, it was just in the music, and I noticed that, and it was really cool. I'm so grateful for your music knowledge, because I, I did not know that. Well, go... It's on YouTube, so. and you can go back and watch the scene again, and you'll you'll hear what I mean. It's really cool. Yeah. Nice. I also I liked your interpretation of it because my one uh, at least the idea of him being genetically superior in that way because I kind of took it as when Uma Thurman was uh, talking about how uh, was talking about him that he was actually an invalid because he had the twelve fingers mm. and that but mm. he used that as a strength. But maybe yeah. I misunderstood that part. No, actually, but I don't that, know, interpretation. Yeah, because she she says something like, "Isn't he?" great and mm-hmm. ethan hawk's character says uh well 12 fingers are one it's how you play and she said yeah. it can only be played with 12 fingers or something yeah so they yeah. kind of have a disagreement about whether he's valid or invalid i guess yeah yeah it's fascinating. i had one other theme mm-hmm. i wanted to talk about in this movie unless you Please. did you have something sienna no no let's go for it lots of sexy men i just gotta say <laughs> there true. are umu thurman's hot and like there are some scenes with her being hot, but, like, there are a lot of scenes of a lot of, like, shirtless guys, and, you know, it, it opens mm-hmm. with uh, Ethan Hawke's character, like, scrubbing himself down in that chamber, and it's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just enjoyed yeah. enjoyed all of the shots of the sexy men's, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot like American Psycho in that way, which is probably why I thought it was Christian Bale mm. before rewatching it and realizing it was Ethan Hawke, and that, like... It's a lot of admiration for the male anatomy mm-hmm. in that movie. That's true. Yeah, I did note uh, in my notes that the first line from Uma Thurman's character, Irene, is congratulating oh, yeah. <laughs> our main characters. <laughs> so, you you know, you can really tell she's uh, fulfilling the uh, 90s female archetype. Yeah, that's what I thought was uh, one of my thoughts about this movie is that they have all of this technology for 
sequencing DNA and determining how healthy people are, essentially. And they still have all of the racism and sexism mm. that you could yeah. ask for. Uh, <laughs> Which is not surprising, but like, yeah. <laughs> tiring, as always. Yeah. Didn't really think outside the box for that one. This movie does not pass the Betchel test. Um, not at all. There was a, actually, talking about women in this movie, there was an interesting, in the first scene, they're looking at the embryos with IVF, and the doctor says, like, yeah. oh, it's going to be it's gonna be a male. And I knew from our discussions on developmental biology, Sienna, that, like, you can't know if it's going to be male or female before it develops, right? I think that's something You've... we'll talk about. You Like, I think the issue... The issue is that, and I don't know, Am, if you were going to bring this up later, but the issue with current IVF DNA testing is you take one cell at the four-cell stage, and if there's any sort of... It's possible that at the four-cell stage, there's differences in the genomes between those four cells. Mm. And it's not certain which one is... Because not all of those cells are going to contribute to the creation of the person. The embryo is going to be derived from probably just one or like subset of them. Probably, probably just one, because the other cells, most of the cells become the extra embryonic tissue, and there's only one section of the developing embryo that actually becomes the person. Mm. And so if you take a cell at that time that has a specific genetic code, it's common that that genetic code, or at least like it happens frequently enough that it's you know talked about in the literature and science, that that genetic code won't identically match the others. So there's a, I did a like bioethics course a long time ago, and we talked about a case where a family was trying to screen because they knew they had this rare genetic disease that's like really devastating. And so they wanted to screen their IVF embryos to make sure that the kids wouldn't have the genetic diseases. And they only selected ones that didn't have based on the screening at this four cell stage. And so they implanted like a set of twins who had been screened to not have it. And then when they had the twins, both the twins had it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this can happen. I think exactly. the same thing can happen probably, presumably with the XY genome, although I think it would be uh, and like male or female, obviously they're just basing that off of XX or XY, but that yes. doesn't mean a, a whole lot. <laughs> yes. And uh, like abnormalities or differences in, you know, genital development can occur for other reasons. Mm. Yes. So screening for XX and XY is a little meaningless, maybe. Yeah, but. right. Okay. We'll get into that. There are some X-linked issues that can happen, which is what this is what people typically will screen for later. Mm-hmm. And that's why some, and it's funny enough in those X-linked scenarios, People will, will actually defer to picking a XX embryo mm-hmm. as a consequence because, so that they can get, they have a second um, yeah. dominant mutation that may not lead, lead to disease. Mm. So usually the boys, or the XYs, I should say, are more prone to issues in terms of X-linked issues. Mm. Sienna, did you have anything uh, to add, by the way? I think my favorite part of the movie is when Irene Uma Thurman goes to get his hair sequenced one, we didn't discuss this, but you can't sequence hair unless it has the root attached mm, because yes. hair is not cells, it's just protein. Um, but anyway, she takes his hair off his comb and goes to get it sequenced to see if he is who he says he is, but obviously he planted the hair. So she gets out that from the kiosk a sheet of like printer paper, yeah. this really <laughs> long printer paper, and it just has like, ran- like G's and A's and T's and C's just printed on it. And I'm like, so... The human genome, for one thing, has not, up until last year, was not fully sequenced properly. Yeah. Um, last year, finally, a single cell line has been fully sequenced, like end to end, and this was using like a brand new sequencing technology that's up and coming. But before that, you just had like 
regions of the genome that we were pretty confident in the sequence and then lots of regions in the genome that were too repetitive to be confidently sequenced because uh, the way sequencing used to work, you had short reads, which are just short pieces of DNA that you the sequencer would shoot out. But if it's, you know, 50 Gs in a row, you don't know where that goes in the genome because it could overlap with a piece that then is 30 Gs and then another sequence, or it could overlap with another piece that's 50 Gs, right? You just don't know how many there are. But then secondly, the fact that you could, in any case, print out a sheet of paper with like 12 point font of the human (laughs) genome and hand it to somebody having done sequencing and like worked with sequencing files. This is not how it works. Like the newest human genome is over 3 billion base pairs long. Wow. Yeah. And they just like, and then handed it to her as though it had any meaning whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> just looking at it as a regular person, looking at these string of letters, like even I wouldn't have any clue what that meant. Yeah. And I'm in this. <laughs> it was yeah. so funny. I loved it. It was like such a good moment of like, like the science I think is overall pretty interesting and pretty mm. good. And they like it. I feel like it, you can tell that they had a scientific consultant. Mm. But that moment is just one where I'm like, I get you wanted the visual. But what's she looking at? Like, she's looking and, like, crying at a list of G-A-T-Cs. Like, (laughs) this means nothing. The one thing with that scene, too, that I found really funny was, so me and Yejim, like, my girlfriend, we paused on this scene, like, a million times to try and read it. (laughs) (laughs) Because we were interested, right? We're like, is it it actually complimentary? What was funny was, in certain parts of it, you could see diseases associated with, like, certain Mm -hmm. lines of the DNA. And you can see like random probabilities that are like meaningless, not, they don't mean anything. So again, exactly adding to what Sienna's saying, it's like a completely meaningless paper. She just oh, dramatically throws it away. Yeah. Like he's too perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Look at these G's. They're exactly. so good. And so like speaking of G's and reading and sequencing and all of this stuff, I wanted to talk about a paper that came out last year that is attempting to do actual genome sequencing in IVF or in vitro fertilization embryos for pathogenic variation screening. That's the title of this paper. And the uh, first author is Nicholas M. Murphy, and it was published in Scientific Reports last March. And so what they're doing, or at least what they're trying to change, is that in the past, kind of like what we talked about earlier, most of the um, rare variants that were looked for were looked in a case-by-case case, uh, case-by-case scenario. So there's a lot of predispositions for a lot of different diseases. Things like cancer, or like breast cancer is a great example. BRCA, mm-hmm. the BRCA genes are often mutated in those and can predispose you to cancer. If you guys know like the story with Angelina Jolie, she had a similar yeah. thing where she found that she had a rare mutation there, uh, decided to do a, what do you call it? A double mastectomy. Thank you, double mastectomy. And more power to her, that's awesome. And that's a decision that she got to make because she knew that. People can do that as well with, uh, with neurological disorders like Huntington's disease, where if you can find repeats, right, you can then screen for that and say, hey, maybe we, we, you know, we want to avoid that in a sense. And it's, that can be especially important, for example, parents who have Huntington's who may not mm-hmm. want to pass that on. And it's a, that's a difficult decision. And so we leave these decisions you know, for particular scenarios. Not everyone is out here getting these rare disease um, uh, detections mm-hmm. effectively. So what they say in this, their goal in this paper was effectively to investigate whether whole genome sequencing for IVF conceived embryos could mm-hmm. actually screen for hereditary um, diseases by using whole genome sequencing rather than on an individual basis. 
And this can be important because like this is a technical challenge for syndromes that result from de novo mutations. And what I mean by that is it, two parents can, for example, have predispositions, but it doesn't really tell you what the embryo will have per se, because a lot of recombination events can actually happen. It's exactly what Sienna was saying, mm -hmm. that the individual cells in uh, an embryo or as it develops the four stage embryo, they're not all exactly the same. And there's recombina recombination events that can happen that won't tell us too much about the actual end stage or won't necessarily align with what the parents necessarily have already. And so it's really important for us to also sequence the embryo itself. And so in this pilot study, that's why I say it's an attempt. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more work that needed to really understand whether this is uh, foolproof, uh, is to effectively describe a method of whole genome sequencing and analysis for embryo selection, which is exactly what they're doing at Gattaca, yeah. funny <laughs> enough. Uh, to prevent early, and this is the important difference in what they did in Gattaca, to prevent early life fatal genetic conditions, mm. right? Mm -hmm. That adversely affect the quality of life of individuals or families, right? Um, an important note for IVF, and I'm not an IVF expert, but my understanding from my reading the past uh, this weekend is that you can actually implant the uh, embryo at later stages, uh, at the blastocyst stage as well, where you have mm -hmm. not four cells, but I think at that point up to 64, if not a little bit more. And mm -hmm. the embryo itself starts to develop, to develop, starts to differentiate into different parts. So you have your blastocyst and you have what's called like the ectoderm or the trophoblast, uh, tropho yep. ectoderm. And that ectoderm, I believe is not actually part of the development of the actual blastocyst. It's actually a separate entity, but contains your DNA. Mm. And that's mm -hmm. an important component of the technology they're about to use because what they do that's really interesting is that they, uh, collect, you know, the eggs from the ovary, collect some sperm, put them together in a dish, and um, start making and the embryos. birds and the bees <laughs> and the birds and the bees happen okay and so you can have these eggs fertilized develop into embryos and as they develop and get into the uh, blastocyst stage and start developing this trophoblast you can actually laser remove a part mm. of the, tro the trophoblast and uh, the trophoectoderm to be more specific and all you need for this sequencing is about four to six cells mm. to be able to do all of the sequencing you want and in this scenario like i said these de novo mutations actually occur within these embryos. And you mm -hmm. can actually check nowadays for these pre-implantation genetic or hereditary issues that may occur. And so what they do and what they use is this uh, technique called Illumina sequencing. And Illumina sequencing has kind of also moved into various other techniques as well, um, kind of subcategories. But I'm going to talk about the overarching Illumina sequencing in order to kind of understand how they do this. Mm -hmm. So now that you have your cells, you know, hopefully mm -hmm. you got a good four to six yield, which is tiny, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's very, very tiny. Your goal, first of all, is to release the DNA, right? You want the G DNA out and about. Once it's released and you have it in a little solution, you have to shear and cleave or cleave the DNA, right? And you can do this by a couple of different techniques. You can use either uh, an enzyme that will cleave it at pre-designed pre positions, like you know which sequences are gonna be cleaved throughout the genome, or you can do it just by brute force sonication, <laughs> right? And that's random. Each of these have their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, and particularly with shearing, it's random. You don't know <laughs> what uh, lengths you're gonna get. But in the case of endonucleases, it's a little bit biased because you know, right? And you could end up with much longer ones in certain areas, much shorter ones in others. The, area, the, the issues overlap, but the randomness of shearing is a particular 
a, a particular issue that is typically addressed thanks to bioinformatics nowadays. So now that you have all, you've broken down your massive billion, uh, yeah. billion nucleotide sequence, right? We add on these little adapters. This is a little bit complicated, but just to think of it this way, it's almost like a little uh, shoelace cap at the mm -hmm. end. Like almost like we talked about this in my aging episode, <laughs> like telomeres. But in this scenario, they are known sequences, adapters of, of known sequences. And we add them to the, um, to the sheared DNA. So now we have millions of fragments with known adapters on the actual DNA. Then what we do, this is where the technology kind of gets uh, really cool. We have these microcells, okay, or micro wells. There's a lot of different variations of how uh, they're actually set up. But what these micro wells have are little oligos. And what, we might, what I mean by oligos are, like the adapters, little sequences that are tethered to the bottom of the actual well. Right, and they're complementary to the adapters of the DNA. Okay, so what we do is then we take our DNA, we wash that DNA on the well so that it diffuses throughout, and the DNA hopefully if things go well, and it, you also have to denature the DNA to be clear so that it's single stranded now, yeah. will bind to the adapters, and will you know be <laughs> hanging out like a inflatable tube man for a little bit. Yeah, and so then what we do is we do what's called effectively clustering or at least PCR amplification on those parts. So what we'll do right away, which is really cool, is we'll just take that part, the actual tethered piece, and use it as like a primer for polymerization. And we'll end up generating a complementary stand, a strand, sorry, that is now tethered to the micro -well. Oh, cool. So I'm doing my best. I'm going to give some pictures uh, of this process as well on our socials. Now that you have that, you wash away that non-bound strand. It's gone. Get out of here, okay? We don't need you right now. And then what we do is, and I didn't mention this before, but the adapters are on both sides, right? So there's like a top, there's a bottom part, and there's a top part. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into five prime, three prime. I think it <laughs> might be confusing. But the top part and bottom part. And on the wells, there's both set of, of adapters. They have different sequences. So once you've done the first round of PCR and you have your long boy hanging out, <laughs> It will bend over and generate a bridge with another complementary, um, complementary uh, tethered oligo, okay? And so now you have this kind of weird bridge of DNA, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, what's going on? And note, an important note is this, like this is only like one set, like one genome being washed across, right? And because you're generating bridges, it will then, will do the PCR reaction again. And so that PCR reaction will generate a complementary one and now you have two tethers of the forward strand and the reverse strand or complementary strands right next to each other, right? And we just and, and keep making bridges and we do it again. We keep breaking bridges and we do it again and we keep redoing this PCR reaction mm -hmm. until we generate what are known as clusters. And so in this micro well now, we have clusters of like areas, right? Mm -hmm. Within this like micro well. And now you're asking, what's the point? Okay, now we have lots of DNA. Like, We've just made a whole bunch of DNA, yeah. Yeah, cares, I think it's important right? to point out, so like in one cluster now, you initially had one random right. strand of DNA that bound, and then it was amplified many, many times. So now you have that exact same strand of DNA, but in a very confined space. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So that's all, and we have the forward and reverse of those in mm -hmm. that small space. I'm not getting into, well, no, no, let's get into it, actually. Forget it. Let's get into the deepness of it. Let's go. Let's do it. We're going to get rid of the reverse part. We're going to cleave it. 
Okay, that's what they do. They cleave the reverse part, and now we only have forward strands, and they're clustered. Mm -hmm. And so they're all the same forward strand in a small area of this little micro well or micro plate. And here's where the cool disco party happens. Mm -hmm. This is what I call it. And uh, I'm, I'm probably going to add the Illumina video because I love it so much. Yeah. And there's like music to this. <laughs> but we add in nucleotides now. Nucleotides are how we synthesize our DNA and what we use for the uh, polymerase reaction as well. But these nucleotides are special. They have a fluorophore at the end of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And each nucleotide... Remember your nucleotides, guys. Alistair were the nucleotides, the four of them. The G A T C. Exactly. Each of them is associated with a different color. Typically, it's like blue, red, green, and I'm already forgetting the other one. There's four different yellow. colors. Yellow. Okay. We'll say yellow. And the, even even okay. nowadays, people use two color to kind of uh, do this method, but originally it's four. And then if there's no nucleotide or no read, it comes out black, mm. right? No color. And so the disco party starts like this. We go one strand, one nucleotide at a time, and we start the PCR. And the moment that DNA polymerase, which is the enzyme that we use to synthesize the DNA strand, starts going, it'll incorporate the first uh, nucleotide. And then it's going to hit the fluorophore, and it's going to stop. It's going to just stop. I can't go any further. I've hit something. And then the fluorophore gets released. At that moment, we image. We hit it with a laser, and the laser will cause the fluorophore to emit light and then we measure that emittance with also a laser detector <laughs> Lots okay of lasers. and some other people will actually use like very very high resolution cameras to do mm -hmm. this as well okay bearing in mind that, that we're doing this not just for one single sequence but millions of sequences at the same time yeah. mm -hmm. okay so really cool right yeah. so the floor four blocks it it's released and it generates what we call a call we're calling it. It's blue, it's red, it's green, whatever it is. We have a call. And then this happens over millions of them. I want to also harken back to the clusters thing that I talked about. Because every area has the same sequence, a small area will have the same sequence, it amplifies the signal. Mm. So they should all light up together. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one way we also screen for issues in the sequencing. If like one cluster is generating like a blue and a red, we're like, maybe something's not exactly right. And we'll get to how they address that a little bit later. At the end of the PCR, we now have this new strand, right? That was, and they keep repeating this until they get to the end of their reads. We do typically short reads, like 200 to, I think max like 800 uh, on like the best case scenario. And that's really rare. Usually around that area, things start getting a little wonky. And that's 800 bases. Yeah, I think at 200 bases like is pretty. Yeah, 200 is the most common from what I've mm -hmm. seen. And we, I think nowadays we're using some newer um, technologies to allow for much longer reads. So then we repeat this with the reverse strand as well. Mm. Okay, so now we go on the other side and we do it all over again. We, we do the bridge one more time, allow for that to extend. Now we have the reverses and we cleave the forwards and we get rid of that. And then we do the disco party all <laughs> over again. Okay, and so this generates what are called, you know, contiguous sequences. So these are like short sequences that we are able to read based off the calls that are made and by doing that we now have a sequence of a particular region in the genome mm -hmm. thankfully thanks to like previous efforts right we have a reference genome mm -hmm. right and we can align our contigs okay that's what they call the contiguous sequences or contiguous reads contigs and align them to the reference genome to allow us to know what is there and obviously there'll be sometimes there'll sometimes be changes differences 
right? But we align them as best as we can to the highest accuracy to be able to analyze those differences and changes that occur. Mm. And so that's modern day, I guess, uh, what the classic Illumina sequencing, Illumina, this company that really pushed this uh, idea forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also say that there's also some newer um, ways to do a similar thing. This group, uh, I believe it's called BGS, also do what's called like a uh, ball sequencing, where they do this a similar thing, but instead of having the DNA uh, bound to the bottom of microwell, they'll actually circularize the DNA, mm-hmm. right? And be and by doing that, they'll be able to actually then sequence based off the balls within a specific region of the plate itself. So it's it's the same idea, but you know, it's all it's all identity working out to generate contexts that are later aligned to the reference genome, and then we compare what are your reads compared to what we see in our in the reference genome itself. But bearing in mind that the reference genome itself came from a bunch of uh, white dudes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but Sin, did you want to add anything to that? I know you're the you're the sequencing expert. No, I think that was pretty accurate. I think at the end of the day, the take home message is on mo- like this Illumina, which is a very common type of sequencing platform, what you get is a sequence of colors that correspond to different bases. And then you can translate exactly. that from fluorescent color that's emitted at a certain moment to what base that is. And you get, you know, 100 to 200 of these in a row. And that gives you a 100 and 200 mm-hmm. base pair sequence of DNA that you had exactly. in that spot. And we've exploited this technique now for everything. You know? <laughs> we do we it do for everything. everything. It's awesome. <laughs> and it allows... Yeah. All the time. It's all it's, I do. It's super cool. And we, you can even get these beautiful pictures of like these wells where you can see like thousands, I guess, in these pictures. I don't know if yeah. I, I couldn't count them if I, even if I tried. But you can see them yeah. like light up in these high-resolution images yeah. and make calls every round cool. uh, for that specific, uh, particular yeah. spot. So that's really interesting. And so this is exactly what the folks here in this paper did. They took the trophoectoderm cells, did this whole process, and by doing so, we're able to mm-hmm. align to a reference genome and say, hey, your kid, your child may have these predispositions. Your child may have these issues. And what they were able to do is mm-hmm. take the previous list of what are typically used for pre-implantation genetic testing, which usually screens for about 200 maximum different uh, um, mm-hmm. SNPs that are uh, associated with disease, but and expanded it to like thousands of others. Now, how far we can take this and whether it's necessary to screen for that much in the first place is a bigger question, mm. right? But And how confident are these genetic predispositions? Exactly. Because I want to note, you know, and especially because we're talking about this movie, right? Predisposition is not end-all, be-all. And that's an important thing. It's an important thing to consider, but it's something that we mitigate rather than stall, right? Mm-hmm. Unless it's something like what these, these authors are trying to avoid, which is something that is a fatal genetic condition, mm-hmm. which can happen. And so we yeah. want to try and avoid those. Well, and that was a big theme in the movie too, right? Like... Vincent's character was said he was going to die when he was 30 and yet he was still alive. I mean, he was probably in his thirties when the movie took place, but you know, he still through deception achieved his dreams and outswam his brother. And on that note, I have a lot of notes. There's a moment in that, sorry, (laughs) there's a moment in the movie where he says to Irene talking about his heart condition, my heart is 10,000 beats overdue Mm -hmm. as in he's lived past the date that the doctors told him Mm -hmm. he were to die. However, 10,000 beats is about an hour and a half. <laughs> he just celebrated his birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I oh, thought that was really funny. Like, note. I get what 10,000 beats sounds like so many, but it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
And that, that was funny too, just on the note of predisposition, that <laughs> they say that he's predisposed to this heart condition, but they never check if he has it. At yeah. any point in the movie, at yeah. least my understanding, right? I know. I was like, where's his heart? Like, where's his EKG? I mean, there was, that one, scene, there was that one scene where he was running on the treadmill and then he like collapses in the change room, but that kind of... That was it. Like he just, so he, he clearly has a heart condition. Well, yeah. see, this is what I was going to say. I had to have a, I had to have a moment of honesty with myself where if that was me, I feel I would be in the same position and I have no heart condition. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would also be devastated by Rob with that, that stress. So True. I, I just yeah. thought it was funny and that he's still able to work out and like do all these like very rigorous mm-hmm. exercises. And so the question at the end of all of this is, does he even have a heart issue in the first place predisposition doesn't mean you have it right Mm -hmm. and that's the important thing there are some things that are carriers guarantors of a disease and there's certain things that are predispositions and those are different things and so that's exactly the hope of this uh, group and they successfully expanded the list and they showed that their screening is pretty robust and mimicked the results that they saw from previous testing as well and in fact Mm -hmm. expanded it so that was really interesting to see so were they looking for like rare genetic diseases that have known causes no so they, or were they yeah. looking at everything they looked at they started looking at everything and then they moved okay. it to uh, known predispositions and these are typically things like associated with neurodegenerative disease are uh, funny enough so i don't know, you oh. know i'm going to name some fun yeah. proteins that some people might know apoe apoe it was one and another one was ataxin for example ataxin two it, right looking for snips in those but and in some scenarios they could also find repeats Repeats are problems, right? And can actually be prognostic uh, tools. But SNPs on their own aren't enough to say yes or no. Yeah, that's exactly the concern. You've mentioned SNPs a lot, and I think I I know what they are, but maybe it stands for something. Can you just say for our listeners what it stands for? Single nucleotide polymorphism. So what I mean by that is a single change in a nucleotide that that typically will lead to a change in a, a protein. For the ones that we care about, I should say. Because if a SNP mm. is silent, mm-hmm. as in it makes no change into the into the protein, then who cares? It's okay. But the, the SNPs of interest... I cares. Well, yeah, some people may care. Because <laughs> I guess it could have impacts on the epigenome itself, but that's a whole other yeah. interesting conversation. <laughs> right? That's a whole other yeah. interesting conversation. But for the simplicity's yeah. sake, that's, that's what we're looking for. SNPs of interest that are associated with disease. Yeah. And so I also want to go a bit back in time uh, to talk a little bit about the Human Genome Project very briefly yeah. and talk about the sequencing that they did in that. I feel for these guys. I, you know, this movie oh came God, out in 97 um, and the sequencing project was ongoing during this time. And you know, nowadays we can, I can get my genome sequenced you know, within the day probably if I was really fast in my uh, DNA prep. <laughs> but what they had to do was a brute force approach is kind of the way I look at it. <laughs> I talked earlier about how awesome Illumina sequencing is and high, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whole genome sequencing is. But what these guys had to do, this is Sanger and his affiliates, I'll call it. I don't know. There's a huge list of authors. It's one of the biggest yeah. collaborative projects ever. Mm-hmm. And they had to use what are called bacteria, bacterial artificial chromosomes to try and do this. What are those? Why do I care? Why is it interesting? <laughs> I talked earlier about the fact that we have to shear the DNA, right? We have to break it into little pieces so that we can sequence it. Mm-hmm. For them, you can amplify DNA. We need to also amplify this DNA to get it into like enough that the sequencer can read it. Mm-hmm. And one way mm-hmm. that you can do this is to take those small sequences, put them into bacteria, and mm-hmm. let that bacteria grow. 
right? When it grows, mm -hmm. the bacteria will make more of that sequence for you. So it's a really fast way to amplify. And an important component of this is that we put it into a bacterial-like chromosome, okay? Or like a, a bacterial-like DNA. What that allowed was it was very stable in the bacteria. And number two, it, we knew where the sequence started because every single one of these backbones that we put into the bacteria have the same sequence except for the part where we put in the, the human DNA. Mm. All right. <laughs> so that's step one. I'm, wanna, I'm just going to throw some numbers out here to make this just to show the technical feat here. For one chromosome, something along the lines of 20 million nucleotides. Okay. Okay. Each bacteria had maybe, maybe a thousand. Let's ballpark that. They had to grow up to 20,000 different clones of bacteria. Wow. When I say clones, I mean the same sequence. So they have the same fragment of that human DNA in order to sequence it. All right. That's brute force number one. So they did this over years. Yeah. Brute force mm -hmm. number two, how they sequenced. Oof, I feel for them. They had to use the OG Sanger sequencing, which we still use now and is mm -hmm. very, very accessible nowadays. But the important, it works. It works it's great. Super well. <laughs> and the original Sanger sequencing, well, let's get into it. One at a time, they took these bacterial backbones that have our DNA and they began sequencing it using a similar, similar technique to what I described earlier, where they had fluorescent DNA, uh, nucleotides. But these nucleotides were a little bit extra special. In these scenarios, they're called dideoxynucleotides. So they have no, they remove the oxygens off the three and five prime um, polymerase. And what that does is it terminates the reaction. It's done once you get there because you can no longer form a phosphate backbone, mm. right? So instead of before, it was like repeat, like let it stop, repeat, stop, repeat. Here it stopped, right? And so you would do this with a very, very low dose of these dideoxy nucleotides and way more of your normal nucleotides and so what this did is it created a random assortment of different length dnas that we could know and i should also say they were floor floor fluorophores at the end of these that we could know based on the color of each of these what nucleotide was at the end of it right so then what they had to do is run it on a gel to separate mm. these lengths because they're all different lengths but they're all sequential, right? The shortest one at the bottom, and it keeps going up and up and up. And you can read it, physically read it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's really cool, that. actually. It's very cool. Wow. What they had to do in the past is they would put this on a, they would run it on a giant gel, okay? Mm -hmm. And have to read it. Because in those scenarios, they would, in fact, what they would do in the past was, before there was the fluorophore technology, they had to use radio-labeled radio yeah. DNA. Mm. And in that scenario, you could only do it one nucleotide at a time. And you'd have to run mm -hmm. each, each sample, like the first lane is A, the, first, the second lane is T, the uh, third mm -hmm. lane is C, fourth lane is G. And you'd have to read it sequentially. A is here, T is here, and it would build it that way. Wow. Nowadays. It's actually really cool. It's like really cool. It's fun to look at and fun to read, but I would not want to do it <laughs> exactly. as, as a non-fun activity, Terrible. as like a job. Yeah. And there's a lot of art based off these kind of things. Like when you look mm. at them, they're mm -hmm. very like beautiful, in my opinion. And a lot of art mm -hmm. came from this. And I noticed it in Gattaca as well in the movie. In the actual Gattaca building, you can see like the fluorescent version of that on the walls where mm -hmm. you see like the green, red, yellow. And it's, it looks just like those spectrums. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what they're going for, but it immediately made me think of these kind of blots, you know. Nowadays, 
we have lasers and we have capillaries. Rather than running it on a gel, we can just quickly put it through a tiny little tube with a fluid in it, a capillary. Mm -hmm. And we can do that exact same technique where we run the DNA through the capillary in this scenario at the end of the DNA, mm -hmm. rea DNA polymerase reaction and let the laser read for us. A, T, yeah. C, G, A, T, whatever, right? And in that scenario, you can sequence it. Then what they had to do, you know, that's nowadays, but before they were using the, the film. And I think they probably adapted the things later on, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, I doubt that they ha were fortunate enough to do that. <laughs> I hope so. And at the end of that, they would line it all up because they also mm -hmm. <laughs> had to like find the overlaps effectively. Similar to what we yeah. do, because they didn't have a effective reference like we do nowadays, right? They, had to, they were generating it. And so they would line it up as best as they could to develop one single chromosome at a time. Wow. Rough, but That's... God bless them. It's like the yeah. worst puzzle in the world. Yeah, no wonder the it hardest, took so long. Uh, the three billion piece puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> so thankfully Unreal. they managed to do it. And now we have our ref a lot of the original reference built off of that and has mm -hmm. been developed more and more as sequencing has gotten better and we've redone it. Exactly. And yeah. So at the end of the day, is Gattaca possible? Maybe. I don't want it to be. Uh, in the 2000s, NASA uh, does like a movie list and they rated it one of the most likely <laughs> movies <laughs> to happen based on oh, our technology. No. But, you know, I hope not. Uh, part of why I'm in science is to also try and avoid these kinds of extreme uses of science, mm -hmm. right? I um, think yeah. I said this to you guys when we were chatting off the podcast about this movie, but as as likely as a lot of the science could be in the future, we can barely get people to get vaccinated and go to work. Like yeah. nobody's going to be sequencing their entire genome every time they step in the front doors of their employer. Mm -hmm. I mean, theoretically it could happen, but look at how difficult it's been to get people to wear masks and exactly. get vaccinated. Like, yeah. And I also, it's important for these samples to be like, fairly clean, you know, straight out of the blood. I don't know how immediate or easy that might be. I don't know if that, mm -hmm. how, I, I'm not sure, genuinely not sure. But, you know, mm. when I do sequencing for RNA, if I even have a little bit of, you know, uh, contaminant from an extracellular matrix, oh, the sequencing is going to be off. So we have to like think yeah. about that. Yeah. Or it's going to yeah. read differently. So it's hard to know. I think the time is an issue. <laughs> I think having it be instantaneous is very unlikely uh, mm. as of right now. Uh, polymerase only goes so fast. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, right? <laughs> polymerase will always be the rate limiting factor in these experiments. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of any others, but I think polymerase is kind of the main one, unless we can find a super fast one, but I don't anticipate it being very efficient. But we already did. That's the thing. Yeah. We're already using the super fast DNA polymerases. Exactly. I think, yeah, the rate limiting factor is that the machine takes four hours to exactly. run your sequencing exactly. so at least it's going to take four hours however um you know coming back to the idea of this is all short read sequencing as i mentioned mm -hmm. which is like the next generation of sequencing you're cleaving the dna into short pieces because essentially because the reaction can only run for so long and add so many nucleotides before it becomes wonky and you get mm -hmm. like low quality reads mm -hmm. so long read sequencing is probably going to be the next next generation of sequencing uh the problem is right now it's quite expensive yeah. but you don't necessarily need to use, well, for some of them, you don't need to use DNA polymerase. <gasps> Oxford Nanopore Sequencing is one of, there's two main long read sequencing companies. There's only two ways to do it, PacBio and Oxford Nanopore Sequencing. 
PacBio is great, really cool, has a really low error rate, which was really high in the past for long read sequencing. And it achieves this through like a circular DNA method where essentially you just circularize your sequence and then sequence it over and over again in like a circle. The thing just keeps going round and round and round. <laughs> and so even though the error rate for that is high, because you do it so many times, it gets low because then you have like 30 sequence reads of the same base pair. And so if 29 times it's G and once it's A, you know that the answer is G. Mm. Um, but Oxford Nanopore doesn't use polymerase in this sense. It might They probably PCR amplify their libraries to get them large enough to sequence, but what it uses is this membrane. So our DNA is contained within our nucleus, and our nucleus has pores in it mm. that are composed of proteins that transport nucleotides out of it, particularly RNA. But they've kind of like hijacked this to transport DNA through these pores in a membrane, and it goes through in a single-strand method. And then they can read the electrical, they have it attached to like some type of electrical system. Engineering escapes me, so I probably can't say it any better than that. But every time a like, base pair goes through the pore, it offsets the electrical conductance of the membrane by so much. And this is different for every single base. And it's also different for combinations of base pairs. So it started out kind of slow and expensive and troublesome because it was really hard to figure out what the base was that went through the pore, but they're using a machine learning algorithm, AI, that learns the more you sequence. So it's like learning what both like individual nucleotides, what the conductance change is for an individual nucleotide, but also how that changes depending on what like the previous and following sequences are. That's so so cool. their That's sequencing is getting more accurate, not because they're sequencing it many, many times or anything to do with that chemistry, but because of their machine learning algorithm, learning better how to determine what base went through the pore at that moment. Amazing. Wow. That's it's so wild, cool. but it's super expensive. But it's also not super expensive in some cases. They also have like a handheld, like tiny device that you can just plug into your computer and do DNA sequencing. And it's really good for field work and like sequencing like metagenomes of bacteria that are found in soil because you can just find like a ton of DNA. You don't know who it belongs to, but then you can sequence long re like sections of it and, you know, get an environmental profile or something like that. It's so really cool. handy. And you can like take it out into the field, plug it into your computer, run a sample on it. There wow. you go. So the handheld yeah. machine could do it. Some, the someday. next next generation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So wow. yeah. So the future is exciting. Let's make it exciting mm -hmm. and not uh, stressful. With not use it for this. eugenics. Exactly. Let's use Gattaca as a template for what we shouldn't do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at the end of this, I want to ask you guys what your final rating, what your uh, valid gene rating for this uh, movie is <laughs> on a scale from one to ten, based on our. Is it valid or is it invalid? Yeah. Alistair, you go first. Oh, I, well, I'm I'm going to give it, in the spirit of the movie, a 9.3. Just, like, uh, <laughs> just like Jude Law. <laughs> just like Jude Law. Yeah. yeah. I think it's probably possible, maybe not exactly what the future holds, but mm. also it was a really good movie, and I, I just really enjoyed it as a movie. So, yeah. 9.3. I'm, like, conflicted on my answer. When I initially watched it, like, uh, many years ago, I thought it was really good. And upon rewatch, I was a little bit like, it's not as good as I remember. So my <laughs> ranking's probably going to be a little bit low because of that. I think it's like a 7.5. It's a good movie. I really like the science, but it, it lacks a lot too. Absolutely. Lacks a lot of critical absolutely. thought, I think. Absolutely. I would agree with that. I would agree with that as well. I'm going to give it uh, an 
one. Because I, I mm. like the score a lot. I like the themes. I like how mm-hmm. they really intertwine the DNA theme into things. Um, <laughs> and the idea of the technology getting to this place is cool. I just hope we don't use it that way. I hope it's a warning rather than a, um, a guide. I'll put it that way. So I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. overall. My biggest, mm-hmm. one, of my, one of my biggest complaints about the idea of that future is they could imagine all of that DNA and sequencing technology being that high tech, but they couldn't like invent a more futuristic looking computer. <laughs> exactly. They were stuck <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> all of their computers look like older than even when the movie was exactly. produced. Yep. I completely agree. Television screens. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. It shows its age for sure. <laughs> exactly. I thought mm. it was funny that they were in the future, but still dressed in like 90s, 80s outfits. Yeah. Right? There was no date exactly. for when this, all this happened. So I just presumed it was still in the That's 90s. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it felt like yeah. it was in the 90s, but if we had somehow accelerated only DNA sequencing <laughs> technology else. and nothing else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So thank you all for taking the time to listen to our movie review, movie scientific uh, review of Gattaca. You can find us on our socials at Not Yet a Doctor on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that. And you can also email us at phd32b at gmail.com for any questions or any future movie science reviews. Yeah. yeah I've been Om. I'm Sienna. And I'm Alistair. And thank you all for taking the time. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Go watch Gattaca. Yeah. Bye.